Welcome to Right Rising, a podcast from the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right. I'm your host, Augusta DeLomo. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Sara Kamali, a holistic justice activist and public scholar of systemic inequities, white nationalism, and militant Islam. And she's here with us today to talk about white nationalism in her new book, Homegrown Hate. Sara, thanks for being here. I'm really delighted to be with you today, Augusta. So, Sarah, I think that we should just start off with the big question about what is white nationalism. It's something that, particularly for those of us who are based in the United States, we're hearing this term thrown around a lot, but could you just start us off with what is white nationalism and who is included and who we're classifying under this term? White nationalism is an ideology that calls for a white ethnostate. So whether that is completely eliminating people of color, whoever is deemed to be a person of color, because whiteness is a fluid identity, as as history has taught us over time, um, and it's very much supported by white supremacy. So the belief that there is an inherent superiority or divine divine blessing or genetic supremacy to being white. And um, in terms of who makes up white nationalists, um, we ha- the way that I categorize it in the book, the, the way that I categorize the uh, members in the book, is that we have anti-government, uh, we have just people who are focused on the racism aspect, and then the what I call racist religion, so um, the- theologies like uh, Christian identity or creativity, um, and um, also conspiracy theories. And then, of course, there's an amalgamation thereof. So it's not just uh, d- disparate categories. Uh, people are, there's a lot of fluidity within within white nationalism, as we've seen in um, at the January 6th attack. And I think we'll be talking a lot about the January 6th attack, but I do want to stick briefly with this idea of white nationalism and specifically what you mentioned about the ethnostate. I've seen a lot of conflation between maybe just sort of broader white supremacist ideas and this idea of white nationalism. So could you just dive a little bit deeper into when we're talking about white nationalists and they're talking about this ethnostate, what does that actually mean to them? And how does that overlap with perhaps how frequently and how easily we refer to someone as a white nationalist, but do they actually believe in an ethnostate? So the very idea that uh, whiteness is inherently superior, whether that's whether that's justified through religious understanding, even white evangelicalism or white nationalist evangelicalism, as I call it, um, or whether that's um, whether that's simply su- supported by um, a specific understanding of pseudoscience of eugenics, for example, white supremacy feeds into white nationalism. So if one is a white supremacist, the way that I argue is that that that. Uh, trajectory of thought and belief will lend itself to supporting a white ethnostate. As far as a white ethnostate and in, in the, in the role of people of color specifically within the white ethnostate, it's not necessarily that people of color will have to be. There are different strands of thought depending on the category or the threat of white nationalism. So either people of color are completely eliminated, and that's well through essentially uh, mass murder, or it's through complete separation. And so there's there's um, a call for a subcaste essentially. So there are different ways of um, understanding what a white ethno state is finally supposed to look like. But essentially, there 
there can, if there's going to be white supremacy, there there is definitely a white ethno state because that's the ultimate uh, conclusion of that of that belief. Thanks for breaking that down for us, Sarah. And you've mentioned it a little bit about the targets of white nationalists, and that specifically in this country, it's directed towards people of color. Is that is it exclusively directed towards people of color, or what kinds of targets are are white nationalists really focusing on in our current moment? In terms of understanding, and the reason I, I'm backing this up just a little bit is because it's really important to understand why nationalism, people in the media specifically don't necessarily use the term the same. And that's, I think, what leads a lot to the, uh, to confusion. So also that will lead to confusion in terms of who exactly the targets are of white nationalism. So we talk you know, we speak about white supremacy, um, and that is going to be targeting uh, people of color. But the other targets of many white nationalists are people of the queer community, are Jewish people, are Muslims, are um, um, people with disabilities, are people of different national origins. Um, so anybody who's essentially deemed to be non-white or even uh, as some white nationalists regard as subhuman. And um, that's the reason why the, the, the complexity of white nationalist ideology in terms of the categories I, I stated earlier, and then also paralleling that complexity is the, the many targets of white nationalism and how uh, the threat po- seemingly posed by these many targets actually supports the need for a white ethno state from the worldview of white nationalists is what makes it so complex. Uh, and that's, I think, something that's often left out of the conversation um, just because of the way that the news cycle is today. I think this emphasis on the news cycle and the way that we talk about these organizations is incredibly important, especially in the context of January 6th. You know, I remember watching the coverage, as I'm sure you did too, and just seeing a really complicated situation that in many cases was being simplified quite quickly into these are white nationalists that are storming the Capitol. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about the kinds of people that were involved in January 6th. Are they representative? or not of white nationalism. And even more to your point, um, much of the media were harnessed on specific names like Oath Keepers or Proud Boys. And then we have, of course, people in law enforcement and military, et cetera, later, um, and even some members of QAnon. And so it just, um, that really speaks to my point in terms of um, how collapsed the what is actually a complex constellation of different actors within within the ideal, ideology of white nationalism, um, how that's played out in the media. Uh, in terms of how representative the groups of January 6th were, and even the people, not necessarily groups, um, what was interesting is that most of the people in January 6th, of course, not all, but the majority were um, middle-aged men. And um, there was a disproportionate number of law enforcement and military members, whether whether past or present, who were um, there that day taking part in the insurrection in, the Janu- in January 6th. And that, uh, what I call ghost skins, um, or, or people who are involved with military and, and uh, law enforcement who are white nationalists, um, that is a very real concern and has been actually for decades. And that, that threat um, is actually just now being uh, addressed by the current Secretary of Defense and, and um, the Biden administration in, in general. 
And I think we're going to get back to this idea of what can be done to counter this threat? How should we approach this threat? But I wanted to briefly shift gears to Homegrown Hate, your new book, which I'm incredibly excited to to have in my hands and read. Um, But can you talk a little bit about who is this book for? What are the main issues that you're going to be talking about? What really spurred you to to write this book? So this Homegrown Hate is the culmination of 10 plus years of research and writing. And um, really, that length of time was due to how complicated white nationalism is, and how much landscape has changed, as well as um, how we've come to understand militant Islamism, etc. So the book covers a wide variety of issues Really, it covers the who the actors are, who the organizations are, what are the religious beliefs, if there are any, what are the sacred values, um, what are the theological underpinnings, how is violence either um, justified through religion or this understanding of certain sacred concepts, how social media plays a role, um, and even manifestos, for example, and also also what can be done. So homegrown hate is for anybody who wants to understand in a comprehensive way, the national security threats that are currently uh, facing the United States, as well as many countries around the world. So not just for academics, not just for policymakers, but really I wanted to have a comprehensive, um, up-to-date resource for anybody who is interested in, in what's going on in the world. This sounds fantastic. And I want to hone in on a couple of key themes that you mentioned, and I think that would be really valuable for our listeners. The first is, You mentioned the end, the sort of global currents of white nationalism, and you argue in the book that white nationalism is transnational. And at first hearing, that can seem kind of like a misnomer, right? Nationalism is based on these ideas of national identity. You're wanting to create an ethnostate within your state. So what do you mean by that? And what does it mean that white nationalism is global? White nationalism, why I use the term, why why I call it transnational, and it's very much also, is what's so interesting is um, after spending so long researching and speaking to people and um, writing about this, um, there are a lot of parts of the world who very much believe in the origins of the nationhood that is meant to be white, whether, again, that's through three theological understanding or whether that's through um, a, an understanding of biology um, that deems white people to have a certain superiority or a mix, mix, mixture of both. And this type of belief um, is found in many parts of the world, particularly United States and, um, and uh, some parts of Canada, actually, and then Northern Western Europe and Australasia. Um, and if we look at specifically the dynamics of transnational white nationalism, we can see that now, too, where many of the groups are communicating and either planning, and there's a cross- pollination, but also a, a communication of ideas and of um, membership across nations, essentially, where whereas perhaps that ne- wouldn't necessarily happen um, you know, a few decades ago. But everything has been very much accelerated by, by social media. And would you say that these groups that are existing in this sort of transnational space that are really sharing ideas, that are communicating with one another, are there are they sharing a particular language about white supremacy that is consistent across these different cultural contexts? Uh, As someone who studies U.S.-South African relations, you know, one of the really interesting aspects of white supremacy in both the U.S. and South Africa is there are shared tenets, but it is quite locally specific. So how do you see this relationship between 
these local organizations that are still reaching out to form these transnational connections. What do you mean in in the South African context? I'm curious in terms of locality. Yeah. So I study South Africa in the 1980s, which some of um, the podcast listeners have been subjected to hearing my insights on this. And one of the really interesting shifts that occurs in the South African far right in the 1980s and 1990s is moving away from preserving the apartheid state as a national system to talking about this idea of an ethno state, which is, you know, what you're mentioning. This comes into conflict with some of the ideas that are coming out of the US and European far right that they're in communication with. So our local, I guess my question is, is our local ideas about white supremacy fundamentally different in these different contexts? Or as you're saying, are they having this shared understanding of white supremacy as the guiding way to organize the institutions and the system that they're part of? That's a really interesting point that you bring up. Certainly, there are different lenses through which white nationalism can be supported. There are many, 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 many groups. Um, And I go into uh, great detail to break that down along the four categories, but even more in depth in chapter one. And the reason for that is to have a common language, but also understand how there are multi, how white nationalism is so multifaceted. So there's, for instance, there's a concept of neo-secessionism, which is very much supportive of uh, white supremacy, but through post-Civil War rights, for example. Um, and then there is um, religion of Christian identity, which um, states that white people are the perfect creation, whereas people of color are not. Um, and all of that language is used essentially, there's a commonality of white supremacy that essentially calls for a white ethno state. Um, but in terms of specific common language, I guess I'm breaking down the book here, but um, for instance, in the last chapter, I, I go through the common themes of manifestos and how over last century and a half, essentially, uh, transnationally, again, from uh, Europe, uh, from Europe to Australasia to uh, North America, how there are certain concepts that have been transported through different manifestos that have that are essentially linked um, uh, through time and um, ideology. Uh, but one one specific instance um, that is quite common that has been leveraged um, since it was first written is the, the 14 words. And I'm not sure how familiar your listeners are to the 14 words, but um, it was what has become known as the battle cry of white nationalists penned in 1988 by... Uh, white nationalist David Lane, who was involved in the order. And then that's a very complicated type of um, uh, lineage, I would say, because the order was a real group based on a fictional group written by uh, Andrew McDonald, was the pen name of the person who wrote the Turner Diaries, who was also found in Timothy McVeigh. So when I say it's complex, this is what I mean. It's very complex. But the 14 words um, is, we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. So White nationalism, and tie it back um, to, I think, the opening question, is that it's very much supported by the idea of white supremacy, that there's something inherently superior with whiteness itself. But then it's also reified by the 
need for violent self-defense in the face of what is seen as a threat by people of color. And so there's an interesting dynamic that feeds into itself. So the self, the narrative of superiority, and then the narrative of self-victimhood or, or, or a narrative of victimhood uh, by, quote unquote, the other, they feed into each other somewhat like an Ouroboros, essentially. That's fantastic, Sarah. Thanks for that overview. I do want to go back to one point that you've mentioned a few times and something that we haven't explicitly addressed on Right Rising, but I think is absolutely critical to understanding not only white supremacist thought in the U.S., but white nationalism, but the role of Christianity. You've mentioned Christian identitarians a few times. Could you, for our listeners, talk us through a little bit of that relationship? Okay, so there are many what I call racist religions. And the reason they're racist is because, again, there's this belief that there's a divine um, blessing and doubt upon white people only. And whether that means uh, people of color are a mistake or less than or the spawn of Satan, for example, and Eve, there's a lot of different um, uh, religious views on these um on, on justifying white supremacy. So when I'm speaking about Christian identity, it's a religion that really peaked in the United States in the 1980s um, and has a following today, but was really born out of the eugenics movement, actually, in the late 1800s in Europe, and then was transferred over to the United States. Um, and there was a lot of xenophobia, which, of course, it's American history. So, um, But in the 1920s, uh, Christian identity <laughs> really took off um, here in the United States, um, and the protocols of the Elder of Zion, Elders of Zion, for example, was um, one of the documents that's a false document, the anti-Semitic document um, that has recently been in the news the past few years as well for appearing in different, um, being in the uh, on the person of somebody who was an officer at the Capitol, um, I think uh, recently or you know a few months ago. Um, but uh, Christian identity is what Christian identity members, of course, would say that this is the real version of Christianity. And, it, and it's uh, one of the teachings of Christian identity is polygyny. Polygyny is the belief that uh, white people are um, the descendants of Adam and Eve and that Jewish people are the, de- the descendants of Satan and Eve. And that really reinforces a lot of misogyny as well as anti-Semitism. And if we can imagine that eugenics was born from the idea that, you know, there's a science, pseudoscience of um, genetic appearance that manifests itself into physical traits that deem people better than others. Um, and then Christian identity also teaches that uh, Black people specifically are called MUD. Um, in terms of the um, in terms of the other religions that are related to, to Christianity, though, is that we do have a uh, within white nationalism, there also exists uh, white nationalist evangelicalism. And what I mean by white nationalist evangelicalism is, um, again, the the understanding of evangelicalism that lends itself to supporting a white ethno state specifically, because if one looks at evangelicalism within the United States, there are actually people of color um, who are are um, evangelicals, but they don't necessarily feel part in part of the um, white evangelical community. And the same actually um, can be said for um, Latter-day Saints or Mormonism. And so there are different communities 
of religious communities who actually have people of color who adhere to these religions, and I'm speaking about evangelicalism and and Latter-day Saints or Mormonism specifically, who then also have different components um, such as white nationalist evangelicals and then um, what I term militant Mormons um, who use um, arguably the same teachings to support Support just theologically justify the the call for a white ethno state. Thank you for laying all of that out. And I think for many of our listeners, it's really difficult to sift through all of these, like you said, these complicated groups that have these shared but interlocking ideologies and uh, tenants and ritual. And so it can be really difficult to navigate all of this. So I'm very excited not only about the pod that we're doing today, but just laying this out for our listeners. Thank you. And uh, there's also Odinism. Sorry. So I'm just letting you know, it is very complicated, Mm. hence the 10 years and hence the need for a comprehensive resource. So, you know, it it really, it really, um, uh, it took a while because of, because of the complexities. So that's what I just want your listeners to know that um, if you're going to read one book, pick homegrown hate. So the time that we have left, could you talk a little bit about what can be done to counter this threat? I think a lot of us are really, you know, really struggling to make sense of something that is not only threatening in a militant terrorist way, but also something that is really intrinsic to American culture. These ideas about white supremacy, this misogyny, it's not coming from nowhere. It's not coming out of the ether, so to speak. So how do you think and as someone who, you know, is a holistic justice activist, how do we think about approaching this kind of threat? Well, first, white supremacy is not necessarily intrinsic to American culture because American culture is made up of many different strands of people who have immigrated and also who have been the targets of genocide, for example. Of course, the many indigenous nations who are here before the colonialists came here. But um, in terms of when you say that people are struggling, I guess, what what do you mean by that? Do you mean in terms of reconciling history? Well, I think in terms of, of reconciling, how do we combat this threat? You know, I think January 6th was a big eye-opener for many people that the kind of warning signs that scholars like you and other scholars have been really raising about this this threat of white nationalism to American society, the threat of domestic terror. But they're really thinking about, you know, how do we approach this? We're hearing reports about sympathies to white nationalism within the U.S. military, within policing. How do we start to approach something that for for many people, January 6th was a big eye-opening event, but they're not sure how to ground themselves in this perceivingly new threat to to the United States? And that's a great way to... Actually, I would I would use your words to reframe the issue too, is that it's not actually a new threat. And so I would like for anybody who would seek to understand how to counter the threat and also to diminish the threat, I would I would um, urge them to understand American uh, history or whatever whichever nation they happen to be a part of in terms of how white supremacy has been so supported by uh, systemically by institutions um, throughout their history, which in most cases in many parts of the world, um, even if it's not a white majority, then there have been certain dynamics of either xenophobia that have been used uh, polit- politicized in order to. Um, uh, wield power, gain power by oppressing 
um, whoever, whomever's deemed the other. Um, so that's one aspect. The other aspect is it really depends on um, who the audience is. So, of course, people in government are going to have different resources at hand than perhaps um, maybe somebody who is an essential worker, for example. And that doesn't mean it's less or more, it just means that it's going to be different. But um, the central the central point and that's something that I that I detail in this concept I call holistic justice is is, is um, based on two two um, elements. One is empathy, and the other one is anti oppression. And so I speak or I write a lot about empathy in terms of not only seeking to understand why white nationalists and militant Islamists. Um, believe what they do and and just and how they justify their either planning or, or perpetration of violence but also in terms of empathy in how we understand each other as as uh, citizens as people who essentially belong to the human race so it's really important to understand one's own history and understand the dynamics of how race has become a socio-political construct that while it may be a fallacy as a construct because there's no biological um, soundness to the concept of race it has been very much wielded as a as a weapon to oppress and also to grant privilege so I would start with with that history. And that doesn't mean there necessarily has to be white guilt or, you know, if you're feeling guilty, if you're in that type, if you're in that position, then perhaps leverage that guilt to actually do something and get to know people, get to know the other, quote unquote, the other. I mean, you know, how much time do you spend um, engaging with people who either come from different places or, um, uh, speak different languages or, you know, there, there are myriad ways that we're learning, especially post tragedy of George, the unnecessary tragedy of George Floyd, of course, um, you know, how to, how, how to speak perhaps about, about the, um, different dynamics that have so, so polarized us. Um, and then in terms of anti-oppression, um, understand what essentially the government's doing. And I think that it's very difficult nowadays just because of the delusion of information, for example. And then, of course, you know, given the context of the pandemic, it's just things just seem heavier to tr- trudge through. And then there, um, you know, people are limited with mental energy and time, et cetera. But um, the only way that we are going to be able to um, counter threat like white nationalism is essentially to recalibrate the way that we think about humanity, war, and uh, what uh, citizenship actually means. And those are, of course, big demands. Then movements that have impacted positively any change have always been grassroots movements. And so I would say that there is a lot of hope given the history of of global communities around the world over time. Um, So don't despair and keep going forward. Sorry, I think that's a fantastic note to end on. And thank you so much for being here. And can you tell our listeners where they can hear more about you, where they can read your writing, where they can pre-order Homegrown Hate? Where can we find more from you? Yes, um, I'd be happy to do that. Um, I'm The only social media channel I have is uh, Twitter. And then I do have my website. You can sarakamali.com. You you are welcome to sign up for that newsletter or send me a, a, a note there. Um, I'll be happy to, you know, I'm just happy to hear from you. And, um, oh, and then Homegrown Hate is available at uh, local bookstores. So please try to shop locally if you can. And of course, there's, there's always Amazon. Fantastic. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. 
Thank you so much, Augusta. I appreciate I appreciate the thoughtfulness of your questions. Thank you. This has been another episode of Right Rising. We'll see you next time.